Sword and Laser is brought to you by you. If you get a dollar's worth of value from the show, how about giving us a dollar back? Head over to patreon.com slash sword and laser. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. Sword and Laser is a book club, but it is so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of sci-fi and fantasy, and of course, awesome discussions from fans like you. And today we are... Oh, go ahead, Tom. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, No, I was just going to say, one of the things we are lucky enough to get to do is uh, have some interviews with amazing people. And today we're joined by Gary Witta, former journalist and an award-winning screenwriter. Uh, You probably know him best for the post-apocalyptic drama, The Book of Eli, starring Denzel Washington. Washington, Washington, my Illinois accent. Yeah, we weren't able to get Denzel Washington. We had to get another one. Uh, Most recently, he served as writer on the upcoming Star Wars standalone film to be released next year and is now author of the new dark historical fantasy novel, Abomination. Welcome to the show, Gary Whitta. Thank you. I'm happy to be able to fill in when you can't actually get anyone amazing. Well, you've been on the show before. This is not your first time. In fact, it's not my my first rodeo. I have to admit, I do kind of miss the the doors with the the steam and the stuff that you used to have on the old uh, the old setup. Yeah, we missed that that too. Pretty cool. That used to be quite intimidating coming through that door. I'm always relieved to not have to do it. You know, we've heard that before. I mean, Lem, he's he's a very large dragon. And when you have to stand back there with the rest of his body before you came through to the actual pub part of the castle, um, it it's could imposing. be, it's a little stressful. His tail's flipping back and forth. You know, the claws are very large. So I can understand the uh, the, the the feeling of, of distress. before. Well, it was, for me, it was more set. to do with like being kept back there waiting for the doors to open and the smoke for the smoke effect was starting to build up. And I'm starting to think, is this, Toxic? Is this safe? Like, am I going to just perfectly safe when the doors open? I don't know. But I only lost the first fifteen years of my life by inhaling that smoke for that long. So I think. Yeah, and the doctor says we'll get all of our lung capacity back uh, very shortly. So. (laughs) So Gary, usually we we kick off the show with a segment called "What Are We Drinking?" Um, So is there anything you brought with you today? If not, that's totally fine. I wish if you'd have interviewed me five years ago, I could have brought some great stuff. But I, unfortunately, I've been uh, teetotal for the past five years. So my, my experience recently has actually been experimenting with non-alcoholic beer. Ooh, which is, what do you got? I don't, have you ever tried it? Yes. yes. It's, it's not great, but it's actually, you know, in the absence of anything else, it does. I guess it's kind of like methadone for beer. Like it at least kind of creates the, the sensation of... It's like kind of drinking beer in the Oculus Rift, whatever that would be like. If you were to indulge in a virtual reality simulation of drinking beer, that's what like Odul's or whatever it is tastes like. It's it's far from uh, a real substitute. I guess it's what Synthahol is. Isn't that what they had on Star Trek where you – no, because Synthahol actually got you bugged. Got yeah, you gave you the effects briefly but without the hangover, right? So yeah. that's what we need to invent, right? We need to invent proper Synthahol where you get the buzz but you don't act like a dick and you don't get a hangover the next day. If they could yeah. have that, that would be perfect for me. I guess I kind of had that experience with the, um, I was I did gluten-free for a while to try to fix my migraines. And so I was drinking gluten-free beer occasionally. And it was just not, I mean, it was okay, but there was but definitely that kind of- gluten-free beer still gets you drunk. It still had the alcohol portion of it, but it was like beer, but not beer, if you know what I mean. Like if you're selling gluten-free beer, you should make sure it says that on the bottle. We would like to clarify that this will still get you drunk. Even right. though the gluten, don't, don't right. worry. The gluten's not what gets you drunk. None of the gluten, all of the alcohol. 
Hey, you know what I heard? You know what I heard the other day is actually re- apparently really good for migraines, and I have no idea why this is. Botox apparently is a way yes. to treat migraines. Yeah, I don't get it. I mean, not that you could even tell because I don't. You never see my forehead. Um, people would be surprised to learn that I actually have a forehead. Um, but yeah, there's all sorts of of interesting new medical ways to solve migraines that I will get into on another show at some point if you guys are interested. Um, But uh, yeah, so I'm drinking, uh, I broke into the good stuff because I felt like this was a special occasion because I'm really excited for Gary's new book. Um, So I'm drinking Old Petrero. Um, So don't tell my husband that I broke into the Old Petrero because it's the most expensive whiskey I think that we own. (laughs) It's good though. It's it's good stuff. Yeah. It is hard to find. It's not pappy, but it's up there. I'm, I, I, you know, since I am actually drinking something, I guess I should mention it. It's the saddest thing ever, though. I'm drinking Coke Zero. Like, it's it's a drink marketed on the fact that there's literally nothing in it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a step selling. above. We've we've done what are we drinking on this show where we're both drinking water. So you at least beat those. I don't know though because at least water is like no one's going to argue the, the 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 health benefits of that. Like everyone needs water, whereas sure. Coke Zero, God knows what it's doing to your your body over the long term. So it's doing zero. It has, it's doing zero. It's doing bad things. Tom, what are you drinking? <laughs> uh, well, I consider uh, talking with Gary Witta such a pleasure that it's like a vacation. So I'm having a longboard island logger from Hawaii. Hmm. One of my personal favorites. But uh, we have a lot of viewers out there, so we should jump right into the actual interview questions. Oh, and by the way, live audience, um, if you would like to contribute a question, head over to the Google Plus page that we link to on Twitter and post a question using the Q&A app, and we'll see it right here during the broadcast and get to your question live at the end of the show. Um, but our first question, uh, if you haven't, if, if people out there haven't uh, been familiar with Abomination and any of the, the media you've done around it, can you give us a brief synopsis so people have an idea of what they'd be getting into? Yeah, I mean, if you're not familiar with it at this point, that's really my fault because I have doing my, I've done my best possible on social media to kind of um, get the word out, kind of guerrilla marketing style. But um, it's my, so real quick, it's my first novel. I have been a screenwriter for many years. Uh, I wanted to try writing something a little different, and I had an idea for a for a story that I thought was um, potentially might be problematic to make initially as a film because it has these really gnarly, horrible, what would be like kind of NC-17 monsters doing the most horrific things possible. So I decided to write it as a novel um, in an attempt also to kind of like flex a different writing muscle and see if I could kind of write in a different language, so to speak. Screenwriting is kind of my first language. I wanted to try and do something different, but I didn't want to do just kind of a typical fantasy novel set in a faraway kingdom. You know, we have Westeros and we have Middle Earth and we have all these amazing faraway worlds. Rather than just try and do another variant of that, I thought it might be more interesting to try and mash it up with um, a real time and place in history. So I said it during the Dark Ages, during the reign of King Alfred the Great and the Viking invasions uh, at a time when Alfred was desperately trying to defend England against these never-ending uh, waves of, um, of Nordic invaders from across the sea. Um, and I then threw magic and monsters and all kinds of weird, supernatural, fantastical stuff into that. And so it was really, really fun to t- take real historical events and historical characters and then filter them through that kind of fantastical lens and it also seemed to me like it'd be a good opportunity to kind of ground the fantasy a little bit more that it, rather than the fantasy being uh, set in some far-flung imaginary place, because it's set alongside real historical events and characters, it might kind of make it feel more grounded and more realistic, even though the, some of those elements are very um, fantastical and very far-fetched, that it might make the whole thing seem more somehow more real. 
Yeah, well, you, you kind of asked my answered my next question, actually, which was, you know, you've done so many different things between screenwriting and comic book writing and writing for games. And, and then, you know, what what about writing a novel was so appealing to you, but uh, it, it just seems like it's so much of a different kind of undertaking, I think, in, in a lot of senses. Did you feel like you'd have the opportunity to tell a much longer, more in depth story that way? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, a, a little bit of it. A, a little bit of it, uh, if I'm being quite honest, stemmed from some of my frustrations uh, of working as a screenwriter in Hollywood for so, for so many years. You know, all, all the things that you've heard about how writers are treated in Hollywood um, are, are often quite true. Um, writers are not don't necessarily have kind of the great of, greatest amount of creative equity in the work that is that results out of the scripts that they write. And so I wanted to try and write something that began and ended with me for a change. When you write a screenplay, you feel like you've reached the some kind of finish line to, you know, to get to the end of 120 pages and you've written your screenplay and you've rewritten it to the point where you feel like it's, it's good enough. Um, but of course, really, you're just at the beginning of the process now because now you have to try and get hundreds of people to come along and spend millions and millions of dollars making it into an, into an actual finished product. People don't read screenplays for fun. They go and see the actual finished movie that that results. And so getting a screenplay made into a film is very, very difficult. Um, and even more difficult is getting to a point where the film is in any way reflective of what you intended when you first set out to write, because directors and producers and actors come along and they turn it into something often better than you imagine. With The Book of Eli, I was very lucky. The finished film was actually so much better than the script because Denzel and the Hughes brothers and so many talented people kind of brought the material and elevated it to another level. That is often not the case, though. Oftentimes, screenwriters will write a script and the finished film is in no way recognizable or in any way indicative of what they set out to to put in front of an audience in the first place. So the idea of writing a novel where when you've finished writing, that actually is the finished product. You're at the, you, are, you are actually are at the finishing line rather than the starting line was really, really appealing to me. And also there were certain aspects of the story that I wanted to um, tell a certain way that might not necessarily fit into a movie-shaped box very naturally in terms of movie structure and, and, and the way that uh, the story is told just seemed to lend itself more to um, a novel. And so it felt like a, it was a combination of wanting to write a novel uh, and having an idea that felt like it fit that better than it would typically a movie. And so the two things kind of came together at that point. Is there a good example of something that you found yourself being able to do in the novel that you were like, yes, I could never have done this if I was writing a screenplay? Yeah, I mean, so part of the reason why the, a novel suggested itself as a better form for this story is that there are, you know, there are two essential, um, essentially two protagonists in the story. And just because of the circumstances of the story and of their life, both of them spend a lot of time alone. And so there's nobody for them to talk to. And that's often very, a character like that is often very difficult to externalize in a film because so much of, of what's communicated to us in, in a film is characters talking to one another um, and you know showing the kind of things that they do when they interact with other people. If you have characters who necessarily are kind of nomadic and, and their lives are kind of internal rather than external, that's very, very challenging to show in a film. Of course, with a novel, you have the luxury of internal monologue and backstory and, be able to, and, be, and be, being able to kind of live inside a character's head that isn't necessarily the easiest thing to, to adapt into a film. So that was one example of I really got to indulge myself um, just living inside the heads of the characters and having them talk to themselves in a way that is very 
difficult in a film. They often tell you in a film, show, don't tell. If it's not something that can be externalized and shown, then there's no um, opportunity for you to communicate that to an audience. Whereas with a novel, you can just have a chapter. You know, obviously you want the move, the, 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 the story to move forward. Um, but you can indulge yourself and just have a chapter of backstory or a chapter of just living inside that, char that character's kind of thoughts and emotions that in a movie is often very difficult to do in an entertaining way. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier the NC-17 style monsters within the book. And, and I think so far of what I've read, it really kind of blends the genres of, of fantasy, dark fantasy, and, and kind of veers into the area of horror a little bit as well. Um, are you a big reader of those genres? And was that intentional or... Just take the dark fantasy super dark. Yeah, I think I just took the, the dark fantasy super dark. I'm not really a fan of, of horror, even as a consumer. I tend to kind of like, you know, get weirded out way, way too quickly. I don't have a very high tolerance for horror. So I don't think of it as, as, as horror so much as I think it is horrific in places. Part of the idea was to kind of try and create, on a very pulp level, I wanted to do an old-fashioned monster story. And that was rooted in, you know, classic kind of, universal monster movies like the Wolfman and Frankenstein and Jekyll and Hyde wanted to try to do something like that. Um, but just as a kind of a thought exercise, like how hideous and horrible and re re repellent and disgusting and scary. Can I make these monsters? Um, John Carpenter's the thing was a favorite movie of mine. When I was a kid, I was always kind of blown away by just how hideous those, those creatures were. And I wanted to try and create something similar to that. Um, and also the works of H.P. Lovecraft and that just that whole kind of eldritch, you know, un, abominable, unimaginable, unspeakable, horrific horror from 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 other dimensions really, really uh, spoke to me. So I wanted to try and do something like that. Um, uh, someone who read the book described it as Game of Thrones by way of H.P. Lovecraft, which I think is the, I'm, I'm going to have to put that on the cover because that's by far um, the, the most flattering uh, quote I've got so far. That's a great blurb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to be using it. Absolutely. Now, a lot, of, a lot of times when people use, especially English history as a launching point, they use a more modern version. I mean, we have tons of novels set in, in Norman times. What drew you to this period of English history? Um, part of the, part of what I think is so fascinating about the dark ages in particular and the dark ages, you know, encompass hundreds of years. There's not like a specific, um, beginning and end point. Uh, but during that period, I mean, so my book is set, um, like it's over a 15 year period starting in 888 AD and ending in 903 AD. So again, this is during the time of the Viking invasions when England was still, there wasn't really even technically in England, there was just a bunch of different kingdoms. Um, like at Wessex and Mercia that were all kind of in, had their own independent sovereigns and, and were struggling to kind of even stay together as a, as a nation. So it's a fascinating time in, in English history that, you know, after the Romans left, basically everything went to shit. And, uh, you know, the Romans at least, when, when England was under Roman occupation, things were at least civilized. And when they left uh, and when the Roman, Roman Empire fell, not just England, but all of Europe basically fell into uh, just a chaotic feudal warfare for hundreds of years. And uh, there was kind of a massive kind of movement of anti-intellectualism that happened where, you know, the, the, written, the written word was destroyed, monasteries and, and temples of teaching were all destroyed. And so they call it the Dark Ages, not necessarily because it was just very bleak, although it certainly was that, but also because it's, re it's relatively speaking, kind of a dark page in history. We know the basic facts, like we know who the kings were, we know the kind of the big historical events, but because so much of that period was destroyed in terms of the historical record, um, there's there's a lot of blank stuff there where someone like me can come along and say, well, who's to say there wasn't monsters and magic? Because this is a, a period of history where, you know, the, the, there's a little bit of latitude there to play around with the, with the historical events. 
Yeah, Jeffrey Mon of Monmouth left left you a lot of room to play in, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the great thing about history is you don't even need to go that far back to mess with it. I used to be a big fan of um, the well, and still am. Uh, there's a guy I'm sure you know him, a guy called Harry Turtledove, who used to wrote these who used to write these fantastic books about well, what if aliens invaded in the middle of World War II and suddenly it becomes a three way fight and to the the allies and the nazis now team up to fight the aliens like what is what it, and so it's crazy and of course we don't necessarily need to have these dark pages in history to take liberties with them we rewrite history for the sake of entertainment every day i just kind of felt that if you go back far enough in history you could create a, almost kind of a semi-plausible um argument for like well who, again who's to say this didn't happen and it just kind of got covered up because you know over a thousand years ago there was so much that about that time that's not known today Mm -hmm. We have a question from the audience that's relevant to this discussion. Um, Andrew Ainsworth wants to know, you said there were two protagonists. Who are they and why did you choose them? So um, the first protagonist, so there's there's two and I wanted to I wanted to try and mix it up a little bit. And the, the story just kind of organically happened this way. One is um, a knight by the name of Wolfric, who is the guy who's kind of assigned, given the task um, by Alfred the Great to go out and, and try and contain this magic, this this dark, monstrous threat that is now threatening the kingdom, and in trying to tackle that and wage war against it, um, there ends without trying to give too much away. There ends up being these tragic personal consequences for him. And then there's a second. So he's like, I guess, like a like a guy in his like late twenties, early thirties. So he's kind of our typical male heroic warrior hero. Uh, but there's a also a teenage girl who shows up kind of a third of the way through the story who ends up becoming kind of the second protagonist. And I, again, it's really, really hard for me to talk too much about who the characters are without giving too much of the story away because it all ends up with like lots and lots of cool twists and surprises, hopefully. But one of the things I was really, really trying to do was create um, the, the the mythical, you want to talk about mythical monsters, the the mythical strong female character um, that is so often uh, difficult to find in decent fantasy fiction. I thought a lot about this when I was writing this character, and I've, and I've read a lot of writing about this, and I think it's very interesting that when we think of, again, the quote-unquote strong female character, what we often think of is just a tough character, like mm -hmm. a kick-ass character, um, you know, a character that can walk into you know a situation and beat up all the guys, and that instantly makes her tough and strong. And maybe it does, but in a very, very limited way. If you think of a male character doing that, that would be that would be thought of as a very one-dimensional character while well, he's strong he's a thug he's yeah, doing some right. but what makes him interesting and so in trying to it, it, it sounds like a counterintuitive way to do it but in trying to create a strong uh heroine in indra who's our uh, our female hero in the story um i just tried to load her down with as many flaws and vulnerabilities as possible she has all kinds of personality issues all kinds of emotional issues she has a very dark path a, a path that has kind of made her a very I guess a damaged character because my my feeling was the way that you make a strong character whether it be male or female is you give them lots of internal flaws and vulnerabilities and then you have them succeed in spite of those things i think that you know real strength comes from conquering the things within that, that hold us back whether it be fear or um, you know prejudice or whatever it may mm -hmm. be things from our past the baggage we carry with, with with us every day if you make someone flawed and imperfect and yet have them somehow find a way to triumph and succeed in spite of those things, then that is, in my mind, a, a much better illustration of a strong character, be it male or female. You know, it's interesting because we actually had an author read a guest post on the blog about this exact issue uh, just this week. Um, but one thing that I think, you know, beyond just making them flawed and giving them some depth depth of personality, you know, giving them agency, having them actually move
move the story forward because you can have someone that's very complicated and and interesting as a character but if they're not doing anything to push the story forward to push the narrative forward then at the end of the day it's not really a strong character within that story but it sounds like in your case i haven't gotten to her yet actually <laughs> in, in the books so um this is all news to me um but if she's a protagonist it sounds like she probably has a big impact on on where the story goes yeah and again this is an example of why the book you know if you were to make a movie version out of the book you might have to change some things around because structurally you typically wouldn't have a second you know a second protagonist character show up that late in the story but the needs with the story for me in, in the book were, were such that that's that's the way it worked and you're absolutely you're absolutely right they do have to have agency they do have to drive the the, the story forward they can't just be someone to be rescued or someone there just to kind of make the 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 other characters more interesting they have to kind of own the story and what i thought was was interesting about indra in this story is that the way in which she drives the story forward is not about defeating people in combat or the kind of things that we typically imagine, you know, a, a fantasy hero to be doing, but by find by, by but by finding kindness within herself and being unable to walk away from people who need help. And I think there's something very human about that. Even though the story deals with these big fantastical ideas of monsters and magic and there's Vikings and war and all this kind of cool popcorny stuff going on, to me the story was meant to be simply about embracing the things about us that make us truly heroic, which are things like kindness and humility and mercy and the kind of things that we all aspire to in our daily lives and we take, take for granted those are the things that make us human, but we often come up short of those things. We're not always as kind, we're not always as selfless, we're not always as charitable or as merciful um, as we like to, uh, you know, as we would like to be. And so a lot of the story is simply about how to find the, the, the better version of yourself within yourself, if that makes sense. That brings up all kinds of questions that would only lead to spoilers. Uh, so <laughs> go read the book, folks. Uh, but let's let's talk a little bit about the collaboration with Ink Shares. This is the first title that's really put them on our radar, and it seems like a really intriguing model for indie publishers. Yeah, Ink Shares is really fascinating. And I'm really glad that I found them when I was when I was first starting to um, when I finished the book and I was looking for a way to publish it. I you know toyed with the idea of going to kind of traditional. Uh, publishers, but I was re also really fascinated by, you know, everything that's happening right now in the kind of the indie self-publishing movement. You know, I talked to authors like Hugh Howey and Andy Weir, who have had tremendous successes with self-publishing and in fact have become quite um, vocal advocates in favor of, of publishing yourself and not necessarily just, um, you know, sub uh, subjecting yourself to what a very, very my offer. So I was playing with the, playing around with the idea of, of self-publishing and just, you know, pressing publish on Amazon and just letting, you know, the, 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 the audience try to find the book if they could. And then I discovered Ink Shares, which is really, really interesting. It's kind of like a, a somewhere a, a happy medium between self-publishing and, uh, and traditional publishing. I guess the, the, the best description is they're kind of like Kickstarter for books. They're a crowdfunded publisher in that if you have a book, like a proposal for a book that you want to write or a book that you have written, you can go onto their site put together you know, a typical kind of Kickstarter type page where you might put up some sample chapters, uh, a description of the book that you want to write, you can make a little video, and then people can go on and essentially back the book by pre-ordering it. And if enough people pre-order the book to hit whatever uh, target Inkshares has, has, has determined is necessary to fund the initial production and the publication and distribution of the book, the book then goes into production. And so it's kind of like Kickstarter Plus in that Kickstarter will um raise the money for you but once you've hit your target they will basically give you the money and say right you know you now go away and figure out how to make this product whatever it is that you've that you funded uh whereas when you 
uh, fund something on InkShares, they then actually take over the publishing and the distribution and the marketing of the book. So they kind of see you through from from beginning to end. And they've been I've had a ter- terrific time working with them. We had a phenomenal success story with a with, with Abomination. We put it up last Monday, and we had a forty five day funding window, um, and we hit our funding target in twenty hours. So we did really, really, really well. Um, and I think it has also kind of help put the spotlight on ink shares a little bit, which is great because I want to encourage authors and readers to go there and, and discover, you know, a, a potentially a new way of getting books to market and, and as a reader discovering books. I often think of this as kind of like an hourglass uh, where you've got in, the, in, in one bulb, you think about the way an hourglass is shaped, you've got these two big bulbs with a narrow neck in the middle. And in one bulb, you've got all the people that want to create things. They want to write books, they want to write films, they want to direct films, they want to make music, they want to make products that they want to show to an audience. And in the bottom bulb, you've got all the people that want to consume that content. They want to discover new music. They want to discover new books to read. They want to discover new films. They want to discover new products. And right in the middle of that, where the sand flows, the very, very narrow neck, is a bunch of guys in suits who basically get to decide what gets through one from one bulb into the other. They're essentially the gatekeepers who decide what gets published, decide what films get made, decide what products get bought to market. And I think what we're seeing now, not just with ink shares, although there's certainly a big part of it, with Kickstarter and YouTube and Patreon and Indiegogo, that is going away. The neck is becoming wider and wider because now those gatekeepers are becoming less relevant and more and more people, I mean, you you, you obviously crowdfunded Sword and Laser. I was on the Greg Miller show earlier this week. That's fully supported by a Patreon. Uh, we have a whole new generation of YouTube stars who are supported by the audience and, their, and the ad revenue that comes from their subscriptions. You know, we've seen amazing products come out of, uh, of, of Kickstarter. And now, hopefully, we're seeing InkShares kind of contribute the, the kind of the publishing element to that. So I think I think it's fantastic what they're doing. And um, uh, we've had a terrific success with, with Abomination. If you go to InkShares.com, obviously, you can find my book, which is cool. But you can also... Find other books. There's a fascinating biography of Winston Churchill there uh, that's being worked on right now. And you can also, again, as an author, you can promote your own uh, book as well. So I'm in, I'm in favor of anything that kind of breaks down those barriers and makes the gatekeepers uh, irrelevant. I was furious upon learning about InkShares <laughs> that I didn't come up with that idea. Uh, so there's that little so, bit of envy there. Does everybody have to pre-sell the same amount or is it varied based on, I mean, how do, how do they decide how many you have to get people to sign up for in order to make it worth their while? That's a good question. I think what they do is like the, our number, for example, on Abomination, it was $16,460. And I have no idea how they arrived at that number, but I don't think they, I don't think it's an arbitrary number. I think they basically look at here, the number of pages of the book, um, how they, how many they they think they want to print for their initial run, and they have some kind of spreadsheet equation, fuzzy math thing that that gets mm-hmm. filtered through, and it spits out a number at the other end, and that's your target. In the same way that again with Kickstarter, you don't often know exactly how much money you need, but you're able to kind of come up with a rough idea. So it, it, every book is different. They have a book on there that I think it's actually uh, uh, Abomination Aside is probably their biggest success story right now. It's a book called Herb, which is basically uh, a cannabis cookbook, which is I, I think a fantastic idea. It's it's you know it's it's basically how to make gourmet, really good tasting food with cannabis. Uh, as an ingredient. So if you live in a state where that's legal, I think that might be, um, that could be a good book to own. So also uh, useful for migraines, I've heard. I, I, so I've heard. And that I think had a higher number because that's a big, you know, imagine what a cookbook looks like. They tend to be big pages, high quality cover paper, uh, very glossy photography. That might be a little more expensive to make. For a novel, 
um, it might be a lot less expensive. Um, the first book Inkshares published was written by uh, Daniel Wallace, who also wrote uh, Big Fish. That was his big hit. He wrote a children's book called The Cat's Pajamas. And I think that actually had a relatively low number because children's books are relatively low page count and not terribly expensive to um, to produce. So every book, I think, has its own um, equation, its, its own number that gets spat out by the Inkshares uh formula and like i said you've got 48 days 45 days to go out and try and and uh, and raise as close to that number as you can that's fascinating what a what a great model and what a great way to get independent authors to to get their stuff out there especially in hard copy versions which is often much much more difficult yeah well, we're going to jump into some audience questions. Uh, if you're watching live and want to have a last chance to get your question in, uh, now would be the time to head over to the Google page and jump into the Q&A app. Um, but our first question comes from Terp Kristen, who says, uh, how much did you have say in the production of Book of Eli? Um, so in the production, I guess not. I mean, the, the, the reality of being a writer in Hollywood is that you very rarely have much say at all. It's kind of the, the equation that or the analogy that I've used in the past is it's kind of like you come up with an idea for a movie. In my case, the book of Eli, that was an original idea. Um, and that's like your child. You raise the child, you develop the scripts, you, you raise it to a point of maturity where it's kind of ready to go out in the world and be, ba be made into a movie. But at that point, you kind of have to be willing to step back and entrust it into the care of professionals. You send your kid off to college and hope they hope it's a good school and hope that, that that kid has good teachers. And in the same way, you hope you have a good director and good producers and good talent around it that will then take it to the next level. And obviously with you know people like the Hughes brothers and Denzel Washington, I was able to have a certain amount of faith that they were going to do a good job. And I think that they did. But that's all you can do is, is, is have faith because once it becomes the own, the property of a studio and actors and producers and directors, you are, you will very, very, very quickly be made aware of the fact that you are kind of the lowest person on the creative totem pole. And what I've discovered is that my, the only power that I have as a screenwriter on a film is the power of persuasion. If I can persuade the director or the producer of a film that I think we should do this instead of that, and they agree with me, then that, that one of my ideas will get carried forward into the finished film. But if, it, but if it ever comes down to, well, I think this and the director disagrees, the director's gonna win that argument every single time because the writer has no um, creative authority at all. That can often be frustrating. So um, in publishing the book, uh, and even in working in television, I'll often find where, where the writer has more equity. I'll often find myself in situations where a director or the publisher will say to me, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And I'm like, wait, why are you asking me? I'm just the writer. Oh, because you actually give a shit what I think in this medium, as opposed to in film where that's often not the case. So again, with like, particularly with Abomination, where like I get to decide the cover of the book. I get to decide. I have a say in how the book is marketed and things that as, as a writer in a film, you would never get to to be in those in those conversations, even though it's something that you may have originated again with the case of the with with Eli or a, 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 in the case of any original script that you might make, even though you kind of romantically, spiritually kind of own it. You no longer own it once you sell it to a studio and you will often find yourself as a screenwriter in Hollywood sitting at kind of the kids table while the grownups make the actual decisions about what happens with the film. Um, so that can be frustrating. Uh, it is part of the reason why I wrote Abomination as a novel because I like the idea that the buck would stop with me. If people like the book, I will take all of the credit. If people don't like the book, I will take all of the blame. Um, but with something like, for example, I worked on the movie After Earth, which didn't turn out as well as we might hope. 
I, it's it, it's hard for me honestly to take much of the credit or the blame for if you if you liked it or didn't like it because that movie ended up becoming even though I wrote the first two drafts of the script that ended up becoming much more the product of Will Smith and M Night Shyamalan and the people who ultimately had creative authority over what that movie ended up being if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. And Terp Kristen has a follow up to that. She wants to know: Do you end up preferring writing for video games or screenplays? Um, writing for video games is really, really fun. And I, and I have a sentimental attachment to doing because it's kind of where I started. I grew up playing video games. Uh, I had a career as a video game journalist before I moved into screenwriting. So I still play video games. My wife and I right now are desperately trying to get every medal in Mario Kart. It's not easy. We love, but we love our video games and, um, it's worked out kind of well for me in the sense that at a time where I'm segueing from, uh, the video game world into the screenwriting world over the past several years, video games have also been striving to become more cinematic and to tell better stories and to have better narratives than they used to back in the days of, you know, sorry, Mario, the princess is in another castle. Video games are expected to do better than that now. Um, and because I have a little bit of a background of understanding the language of games and now understanding to some extent the language of storytelling, I'm able to work on things like The Walking Dead and and help develop those stories. The problem is they are they are so, so hard to work on. If you think about how hard it is to work on just a novel or a screenplay where you're, where you're telling one linear story with one version of events that transpires from beginning, middle, end, go from that to working on something like The Walking Dead, where there are literally hundreds of different branching variations of the story based on the way that the player you know, reacts to choices they might make through the game as they execute their agency as the protagonist in the story. And all of those branches have to be equally satisfying. They all have to make logical sense. The, 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 you know, the house of cards that you've constructed can never actually fall down. Um, the episode that I wrote for season one of The Walking Dead ended, I think, with a scene where there were... I don't even remember the number, but it was dozens and dozens of potential ways that even one single scene could play out based on the game tracking all of the different choices you had made over the course of the previous four episodes. And I, in fact, could have used some Botox when I was working on that scene because it is it is literally migraine-inducing when you're trying to keep that kind of stuff together. And simply as a, as a, as a matter of volume, it's inc- just the amount of work you have to do is incredible. I mean, a, a typical episode of... Uh, the Walking Dead. It takes about as long to play an episode of The Walking Dead as it does to watch a movie. Um, so about two hours. A two-hour movie script is about 120 pages because one minute of uh, screen time roughly equates to one page of the script. Uh, for The Walking Dead, the script I wrote was closer to four or 500 pages because even though you're not going to see every version of the story and every conversational branch, they all have to be written. And unless you're going to go back and replay and try every different choice, mm-hmm. you're, you're simply never going to see everything that, that was written. So it's often a, often a thankless task, but when you, when, you play the, when you play through the game and you get that great sensation of not just watching the same episode of, say, The Walking Dead TV show that everyone else saw, but creating a version of the story that is uniquely yours because you helped craft it, because you made the choices and you arrived at a conclusion of the story that, you were kind of a co-writer on to some extent. That's really, really satisfying, both for you know me as the writer and for the um, the audience for the game as well. And you don't get that in any, any other medium. That doesn't mean I'm going back to it anytime soon because it really is incredibly hard work and I'm quite lazy. It's like the most difficult choose-your-own-adventure story of all time. That's ex- that's essentially what they are. We've kind of created now this hybrid form. Telltale Games is very, very good at doing this, and there's a lot of other uh, people out there right now exploring different ways to to do narrative in games, which kind of are kind of a weird hybrid between uh, an interactive television series and the good old fashioned 
choose your own adventure books. And we all remember even in that primitive form, just how compelling that was. Do, should I go, should I turn left and go confront the dragon or should I go right and go do this other thing? Just the sense that the, that the, that the story was asking you to contribute was really, really compelling. And that was in the most primitive form imaginable, just in those choose your own adventure books. Now we have all this amazing technology and tools and artistry to be able to, to, to kind of take that idea of bringing the audience into the story and making them feel like they're a collaborator in the telling of the story. And we're, we're still learning how to do it, but when we get it right, it's like I said, it's, it's fantastic for the audience. All right. We have another question from our audience. Speaking of which, uh, David Bowler wants to know, uh, have you considered taking something you've written into a self-produced web series? What characteristics do you think lend to that working well? I actually have an original web series that is going to be coming out next month. Uh, this, this guy must be some kind of genius or um, fortune teller or something. Producer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, you know, it's interesting. I, I think increasingly, rather than plug that, I'd rather just answer the question. Increasingly, again, I'm looking. We're looking as as creators. I think we're looking for avenues. The end game is always how do you get this in front of it? How do how do, how do you produce this? How do you get it in front of an audience? How do you uh, present it to the people that you want to present it to. And, you know, I've worked in screenwriting for a long time and it's an incredibly low rate of return. It's high risk, but high reward. You get paid very, very well. But part of the reason why you get paid very well is to put up with all the shit that you have to put up with in Hollywood. And part of that is the fact that 90% of the stuff that you write will never be put in front of an audience. Your script may be rejected. You may be rewritten by someone else. You may write a movie that is never produced. And like I said, I've, I've worked on so many different films and written so many different scripts that will just never be made. And it's a very low rate of return. And that's very, very unsatisfying. And so part of what I've done in the last couple of years is kind of go back and return to original scripts that I wrote back in the day that were never made. Um, but they're kind of an itch that still needs scratching because it was a story that you wanted to tell. It was an original idea that you wanted to have. You wanted essentially to get it in front of an audience, if not in, if not as a film, then in some other form. So, for example, the very first screenplay that I ever wrote that got me, certainly not the first I ever wrote, but the first that kind of got me into the business that was never produced, um, has sat around for something like 10 years kind of sitting on my desk, kind of whispering in my ear, like, you really, really want to tell this story. I, I know you do. Maybe not as a movie, because it might be too difficult. Again, the, a movie is always the steepest hill to climb in terms of realizing your story. Um, so we went back and I kind of took the script apart and reverse engineered it into a comic book, which now is being made. And whether or not that eventually ends up becoming a movie down the road, I don't really care. That's not the end game. The end game is that basically I will, I will have gotten to scratch that itch. Even though it's in a different medium, I will have gotten to tell that story uh, to an audience. So um, I think that's something now that increasingly screenwriters are doing. They're looking at the things that they've worked on in the past, realizing that maybe getting it made as a movie might be too steep a mountain to climb, but there are easier ways. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a novel. Maybe it's a comic book. Maybe, at least, as you say, it's a web series. There are other ways to realize these stories that are just as satisfying for the author and hopefully for the uh, for the audience, but don't necessarily have all the obstacles that feature filmmaking uh, present. All right, so uh, done with audience questions. We have a final one from Tom and I, and uh, we have to ask, people will basically murder us if we don't. Uh, what, if anything, can you tell us about your time working with Lucasfilm on the standalone Star Wars movie? I totally understand that people will murder you if you don't ask the question. You also, of course, understand that there are people who will murder me yes. if I answer it. I think they actually have the power to force choke me like from a distance. Like, remotely, like, remotely, yeah. It, 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 would, it would literally go like this. Well, Veronica, I shouldn't really be telling anyone this, but I'm going to tell you something about Star Wars that's not been released. Basically, 
and they were just I, they would just know like they have that ability so i have to be very very careful and very circumspect uh, about what i what i say other than simply to kind of regurgitate what's already known and is out there you know episode seven is coming up next year uh the next one after that will be the first of what they call the standalone movies which are essentially star wars films that are still set in the star wars universe you know they'll they, you'll there are elements to them that you'll recognize as familiar to you know to star wars fans but they're not necessarily part of the luke skywalker saga that's being told now and continued over the course of episodes seven eight and nine so i um, worked on for the first the, the, the first one of those for about a year uh, very closely with the director Gareth Edwards, who did Godzilla last year and is now directing this. Um, I think it's going to be fantastic. There's literally nothing I can tell you about it at all, but it was by far the most fun I ever had. And I will happily come back on December 18th, I think it is, 2016, and tell you amazing stories and show you pictures and all kinds of things that are very cool. Uh, but like I said, the, the 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 fear of just walking down the street one day and and feeling that tightening of the larynx larynx is ever present fear yeah. um, they would find that disclosure disturbing yes Luke, oh, Luke is, <laughs> Tom. yes i find i yes i find i find your i find your lack of uh, security um disturbing <laughs> and then i'm just dead all right well it's a date next uh 2016 we'll, we'll have you back on the yeah, show <laughs> yeah, yeah, only what Ooh, uh 22 months away the time will just fly by and you yeah. have a whole other star wars movie to get excited about in the meantime so Exactly. But it's not a Gary Wood a Star Wars movie, so that is all that makes all. But the it's difference. JJ, and it's got crazy lightsabers with like three things sticking out of them. It's going to be awesome. But apparently, Johnny Ive helped you know give some hints on the design for. Oh really? The I read. The I read New Yorker that in, said the, that in the profile. Yeah. Well, they're yeah. they're pals, and so apparently they've done some collaborating. You know, friend on friend that, terms. Does that, mean that new, does that mean that the new lightsaber will not work properly and won't sync with iTunes like every other app? <laughs> Precisely. That could be like the plot of the whole movie. Well, yeah, Luke Skywalker is going to have an Android lightsaber, and they're just not going to work together. It's going to be horrible. <laughs> So, hold on, I have to restart my lightsaber. I have, to, <laughs> I have to totally turn it off and on again before it'll work. Nerds. <sighs> yeah, it's like bump when you when you cross sabers. It actually sends contact information. Okay, that's yes. that's enough. That's no, enough. Keep going. I feel. I feel well, like I know you can. That's why I have to stop. <laughs> uh, hey, Gary Witta. Uh, people yes. are going to want to know everything that you can tell them about Abomination and everything else when you can tell them. Uh, so, where can people keep track of you online? Uh, so you can follow me uh, at uh, Gary Witter on Twitter, G-A-R-Y-W-H-I-T-T-A. And if you want to get the book, we still have, we're still doing signed copies. I think there's about a hundred left uh, before I, I stop signing them. My, my, um, my wrist is not what it was in my teenage years. So I had to, I had to say 2000 copies and no more, no more signing. So um, you can go to inkshares.com. Um, the full URL, I believe, is inkshares.com slash project slash abomination. But you can just go to inkshares.com and scroll down. There's a section there that says flying off the shelves, which even though there aren't any shelves technically yet, apparently abomination is is flying off of them, the virtual shelves. So you can go there and you can order either an ebook uh, or a hardcover, which also comes with an ebook included because I feel like they should all do that. Does Amazon do that now when you buy a physical book? Well, the yeah, well, publisher right? allows it, they will, yeah. Right. I feel like that's that's it's like a it's a no-brainer. Why does why doesn't every publisher do that? Um, so yeah, you can get an ebook. I think for eight bucks or for twenty-five bucks, you can buy hardcover and there's an ebook thrown in as well. So that's my plug. I'm done plugging. 
<laughs> well, speaking of crowdfunding, if you guys out there are into that kind of thing, our show is currently entirely funded by our patrons at patreon.com slash sword and laser. Thank you to all the folks who have contributed to the show that way. And if you want to support the show, head over to patreon.com, as I said, slash sword and laser. And, uh, you know, it's the value for value model. You get some value out of the show and you can afford to give some value back. That's one way to do it. Uh, if you can't commit to that sort of support, you can also support the show by buying books through our links. You can find links to the books we talk about and just some of our favorites at swordandlaser.com slash picks. And if you want to get in touch with us, our email address is feedback at swordandlaser.com. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. And if you want to call and leave a voicemail, the phone number is 415 415- Seven Sword Six. Gary Witta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a thrill to be here. I love it. Have a great day. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.